Hello, and welcome to Follow Your Curiosity, where we explore the ups and downs of the creative process and how to keep it moving. I'm your host, Nancy Norbeck. I am a writer, singer, improv comedy newbie, science fiction geek, and creativity coach who loves helping right-brained folks get unstuck. I am so excited to be coming to you with interviews and coaching calls to show you the depth and breadth both of creative pursuits and creative people, to give you some insight into their experiences, and to inspire you. If you've been listening for a while, you probably know that I've written a novel. What you may not know is that for a period of at least 10 years, I didn't write fiction at all. And when I started again, it was in no small part thanks to encouragement from my dear friend, Cindy Lynn Spear. Cindy Lynn is the sort of writer you often hear about, the one you can't stop. As you'll hear today, she started writing when she was 13 and was so frustrated with the book she was reading that she was quite sure she could do better. Once she began to experiment, she kept going. She's been a book reviewer, editor, author, and just about every other sort of wordsmith you can imagine. And she's about to release her latest book, The Key to All Things, on July 25th. Today we cover those early days of writing, the journey from college graduation to published novels, the perennial discussion of plotting versus writing by the seat of your pants, the importance of being kind to yourself in the creative process, and a whole lot more. Here's my conversation with Cindy Lynn Spear. Cindy Lynn, I'm so excited that you're here. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. As have I. We've been friends for like centuries, so this is really great that we get to actually sit down and have a conversation about these kind of things. Things I know. (laughs) You've got me doing the mental math now, and it's not centuries, but it's close enough. We'll just leave it there. So, (laughs) if you don't know the truth, hyperbole will do. That's the new standard. (laughs) That's true. That's very, very true. So for as long as I've known you, if you have ever told me how it is that you got started with writing, I have long since forgotten. So could you help us out there? Absolutely. I got started in writing. It's actually a horrible story. It's very shady because (laughs) I was reading this book and I thought, I could do better than this. And I was like 13. And so I found out that you could take notes, and it would, if you were actually writing in class, it looked exactly like you're taking notes. So all the teachers really loved me because I would look up at them, but I'd be writing my story, and they would think, <laughs> oh, my God, she's writing every... She's hanging on every word that I say. And so as long as I kept my grades up, I was like, yes, I will just sit here and I will write stories, and I passed them out to my friends, and they were like, oh, my God, this is the best thing ever. And I was like, okay, maybe I can do this. So... <laughs> That's how I got started. Trying to make people happy and trying not to get trouble in in the trouble, which is pretty much basically continues to be my life. (laughs) That sounds like a reasonable motto to me too. You're full of those today. (laughs) I'm full of a lot of things, but we won't say what. (laughs) Now I'm actually kind of jealous. I don't think I ever did that in class. I'm sure I wanted to. I'm not sure I ever had the nerve though. Study halls and stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. But I don't think I ever did it in class. So, so you, I, I take it you never got caught? Nope. And I always made sure to keep my grades up, except for in algebra. It was algebra was hopeless. They all gave up on me fairly quickly. You know? 
I understand that feeling. Um, so if your friends all loved everything you wrote and you said, this is awesome, maybe I can do this, what came next? All enough research because um, I read this book by Barbara Hambly, who is a fantasy author, and she actually writes mis historical mysteries too. She's amazing. Um, it was called Dragon's Bane, and it was the first fantasy book I ever read. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of medievally. And so I thought, I would really love to write fantasy. And so I started like checking out every book on medieval stuff I could. And one of the other things I would do in class when I couldn't be caught or study hall is I'd be outlining these books on medieval history. It doesn't really help me now. I don't write medieval. <laughs> um, I, I get, I still enjoy the medieval stuff, but um, so I start, I, I learned fairly early research and then I thought to myself, okay, I'm going to become a librarian because if I become a librarian, I will help people. And when I'm not helping people, I will read and I will research and I will write. And any librarian worth their salt, any librarian listening to this podcast right now is laughing their backsides off because that's <laughs> not what happens when you're a librarian. <laughs> yeah, the perception and the actuality are fairly different there. <sighs> I just kept on researching and I went to college and got a degree in creative writing, partially because I thought I was going to go and become a librarian and partially because I took this one class on the history of language for my degree as because I was just doing a regular English degree mm -hmm. and he made it so damn boring I couldn't stand it I literally changed my major to creative writing because this guy made the history of English so horrible I was like nope I'm done bye that's that's criminal because the history of English is fascinating it is and I, I've, I've started reading a book about um i had a couple of books i started reading and then i shoved them on a shelf to put them somewhere safe oh that's the kiss of death yes <laughs> so i have to go and search for them because it is actually really interesting yeah formed it's amazing um i think our language i, I love english it's just like it's not it might not sound as beautiful and romantic as italian mm -hmm. but it's like it's it's such a it's a it's a very roguish language. It just steals from <laughs> does whatever it wants, and I love it. It it does, and that's why you know it's going to say our vocabulary is bigger than your vocabulary, you know, because we've <laughs> stolen from everyone shamelessly. And then, you know, I was just thinking while you were talking, like you, you know who the language geeks are because they know what the great vowel shift is or was or that it exists you know like there is a thing called the great vowel shift <laughs> and yeah and you know all of the anglo-saxon middle english modern english how shakespeare is not written in old english no matter how hard you try to convince me <laughs> it's just not true <laughs> so yeah it's I, I don't know. I mean, it's it's a fascinating thing, and I'm sitting here thinking it's a bit, bit colonial, really, because well, the Brits were, and that's where half of these words come from. So that's true. That's true. Yeah. So it's got its dark side, but on the bright side, we have all these words to play with. So I was trying to remember. There's a gentleman who used to do Beowulf in 
the original language. Mm-hmm. And he was amazing. You actually, it actually was interesting, but now I can't remember his name. You know, it's, um, by the way, I'm getting off topic. <laughs> That's all right. His topic's all about me. No, it's not. I'm, I'm very, I'm very boring. But anyway, save me from myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're not boring, but, um, so, so if you decided that you wanted to write fantasy and, and do all this medieval research, what were you writing in class when you first started? Um, um, well, I would write, I, I tried to write a murder mystery with a woman who was a ballerina and her shifty, horrible boyfriend. And it was very, you know, remember I was 13. Mm-hmm. So it was very, you know, very silly. Right. And, um, then, and, and I had friends who, since my friends loved it so much, like if they had a band they really loved, I, I had, I wrote like some, I wrote them stories where they went on adventures with their band. The worst one, the one that, that I shouldn't confess to, I actually named Beauty and the Bono. <laughs> oh boy. I remember those days, but you're making me nostalgic now. <laughs> So, and because I, I it, it was really nice because I think what that time did was it, re- it made me realize that you could make people's lives better. Like, mm-hmm. and when I say that, I'm not like saying like in some kind of huge way, but I've said before, I would really like to make people happier. Like, mm-hmm. because days, life is horrible a lot of times, right? It's boring or you have a crappy day and I wouldn't mind writing stories that people look forward to picking up. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe your day at work was crappy, but you have this book and it's, it's, it's got a story that you really like. And so you sit back and for a little bit, I'm there for you. It's really my book that's there. I am making your life slightly better because I really love that. I, I, those were the stories that even they were, they were really goofy as all heck. And if they were found, they would probably be terrible blackmail i'd probably like pay my kidneys out to, to keep the <laughs> anybody from reading them again but it taught me that it is a real pleasure to make people genuinely happy from reading your stuff but mm-hmm. i'm not really that comedian right where i mean i can be funny but it's very situational comic comedy I'm, I'm i think i'm very dry a lot of the time so i can't write commit co- comedy books so I just have to try and write really interesting books that people just look forward to, to finding out what happens. And that's really Hopefully. what it's about, right? <laughs> you know, yes. I mean, that's, that's the whole, that's the whole point. I mean, I, you're reminding me uh, again of, of high school when one of my English teachers, and now I'm not a hundred percent sure which one talked about E.M. Forster's aspects of the novel where he says, you know, story is the question that, that asks what happened next and plot is the question that asks why. But like that, story yes. is what keeps you reading the book. You know, if you're not interested in the story, you're never going to finish the book. No. And if you don't engage the author, you can have the best mess, not author, sorry. If you don't engage the audience, you can have the most incredible message in the world but they're not going to get to it. Right. Right. So 
did you share any of the things that you wrote with your teachers? It doesn't sound like it, but I'm in curious. class, yes. If 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 I had um, if I had it, mostly with my English teachers. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, I always shared. I had a I had a really wonderful poetry teacher in college, and he found out I wrote poetry, and he's like, "Let me read some." And I'm like, "Oh, I, I can't. I it's probably it's awful. It's not." Mm-hmm. It's, I knew he was a Chaucerian scholar, so I'm like, I know. <laughs> it's like, he, he, he said, how will you know if it's, you, you, you can't tell if it's really good because you're the one who wrote it. Fair you point. Know, you have to let people read it. Mm-hmm. It was so encouraging and wonderful. And um, yeah, so, and also I was really wise very early in my college career because I realized since I was a creative writing major, I could keep recycling the same story as long as I improved it and drafted it. And chapters, right? I wasn't cheating. I just kept on using the same story and using all these professors to teach me how this book could work. Mm-hmm. Better. And I would just add chapters to the book, and I would just keep on trying to expand it. And uh, it, the bones for that, for the book I, I ran through a lot of my college career, actually became my second published book. Um, for the most part. Um, it was stuck until I realized that my main character was not actually a vampire. And then, <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> that would make a difference, yeah. And then it, it all fixed itself up and I was able to finish the book. So, isn't, and it, isn't it amazing how when you figure out like the one thing that's off and you tweak it, it's like, it's like having a magic wand. It's like suddenly everything works better. It falls into place. It's like, it, it's like, it, it could be anything. It could be that your character is not actually a vampire. It could just be that you put it together the wrong way. Like the story is good, but the right way to tell it hasn't happened yet. And when you figure that out, it's just like, it just comes out of you from nowhere. Have you noticed that too? Yes. Um, actually, the, the book I, I'm just about to publish, um, I was... I was writing, I wrote an essay. I'm going to be um, on, on The Big Idea with John Scalzi. He does a blog post for people where you write an essay about the big idea of your book, the driving idea of your book. And so I was writing that today. And I remembered that the reason what started this was I was watching these movies where, you know, you have these grand, grand romances, you know, the couples kept apart and then they reunite and everything's wonderful and everyone lives happily ever after and there are these big grand amazing stories and then i thought well what happens if that great love does not last forever mm. so i started writing a story a while back where the main character was the man in the story and the the great love of his life betrayed him and everybody knows their story. And the main female character, she had spent her whole um, young adulthood knowing this story. And that was the bar that she, had, that she had set for romance. And now she's in his party. I forget why they were. He was going to go do something brave to make his life better. And she was there with him. I don't know why. And I just didn't like, I, I couldn't figure out what I was trying to say outside of sometimes love sucks and everything's horrible. <laughs> and, and I, so then I got back to it. I, I, there was a snow day and for some reason it had been churning in my head 
And so I got to sleep in. I went to work in a really good mood. And during my lunch break, I was like, I know what happens. And so the story still is about Edward Devere, who was the human captain of the Queen of the King's Guard. And he fell in love with Catherine the Willows, who threw him aside because he she wanted to become the queen of the Fae. And her love was forbidden and all that good stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. And the only story anybody hears, the only story. It's such a powerful story that there's no other songs, nothing, just about them and tons of variations. And my main character is um, Avriel, who for three hours every night, she realizes that the story is actually wholly wrong. Edward Devere actually always detested Catherine, and he's actually her husband. So she's trying to figure out how to change the world in three hours every night because the next day she doesn't remember anything. She's got notes she writes to herself, you know, things you should do, three things I want you to do today. And she's like, I don't know why I'm listening to these notes, but I really have to because things, awful things happen when I don't. And I feel really awful all day if I don't listen to these notes. So I guess, you know, so she's, it's all about the power of story. And, you know, it's, it's about, you know, when you write, a, when, you, when you tell a story, you're, you create a narrative. And we create narratives constantly, right? Mm-hmm. Fighting narratives now. She's fighting this narrative that this man is not her husband. She's actually an awful person. And, and Catherine of the Willows is amazing and adorable and everybody loves her. And she's fighting that narrative, even though she do- often doesn't know why. You and I fight this, all sorts of narratives all the time. Like, you know, I don't know why I'm on this podcast. I'm just blathering on like an idiot. <laughs> you know, I, Nancy is never going to want to talk to me again after this. <laughs> fight these narratives all, all the time. And, you know, we've got a lot of brave people fighting some terrible cultural narratives right now, as we, even as we speak. And so that's kind of what I was wandering into. So instead of it just being a story about, well, sometimes love doesn't work out the way we think it is, it really does become more about, you know, the power of story over our everyday lives. That is so deep that I have to ask you, because I suddenly realize I don't remember the answer to this question. And I'm sure that somewhere in the multiple hundreds of centuries that we've known each other, we've talked about this. <laughs> but do you plot or do you fly by the seat of your pants? Or do you I, do some of each? I don't really plot much. I mean, sometimes when I'm, uh, I, if I get an idea, I'll write it down you know, no matter what, even if I'm in the middle of another story, because I want to try and remember it. And I have all sorts of files in Scrivener where there's partial stories and I'll sit down and it's actually called until the thread picks up. And Mm -hmm. when I'm between stories, I'll just sit there and I'll pick a random story and I'll sit there and see if I can write it. Because to me, the first draft of your book is the only time you get to surprise yourself. It's the only time you get to be the reader. Yes. So, to just let myself just write and go. And usually, I, a lot of times, I'll have a, a rough idea. Like when I wrote The Chocolatier's Wife, um, that was one of those books that just, all of a sudden, I was eating chocolate and I was thinking about an obscure actor I liked and boom, the whole story just came right out. <laughs> um, 
it was like, I, I, I wrote obsessively on it for like two months. And when I finally wrote the end, I was, I, I came down with the flu for like a week. <laughs> and I'll tell you, all I did those, was those obscure <laughs> actors, they'll get you every time. <laughs> yes. Obscure actors are the best. Um, so, you know, so I kind of sometimes have an idea, like if I know, like when I do the murder mystery bit, I didn't know who did the murder mystery bit in the key to all things until, until I found out. <laughs> so it was kind of exciting. I was like, oh my God, that's who did it. I better make sure. Yes, I actually did write how, why. Oh yeah. Okay. I already wrote enough to prove that this person actually did it. Oh, thank you. Past me. <laughs> Isn't it amazing when you realize that you've set something up and you didn't even know you were doing it? Yes. I, that's what, and that's what, the only thing that makes doing the second draft any fun is those moments of, oh, wow, that's really actually quite good. I might <laughs> be a worthwhile writer. And then, then the next one, you're like, well, uh, yeah, what the hell were you thinking? <laughs> <laughs> True, though I also like the moments of, wait, this doesn't make any sense. I don't understand. How do I, this has to fit together somehow? And it doesn't fit together. And it's not, how can I make this make sense? And then, you know, you're in the shower or you're driving somewhere and all of a sudden, boom, there it is. And you're like, oh, that's it. It's perfect. And, and it always comes to you when you're in the shower or driving or somewhere where you can't write it down. That's the scary thing. Yeah. If you're somewhere where, or, or if it's just so strong that you know you're not going to forget, that's one thing. But when you're out somewhere, when with me, it tends to be smaller things, like little scenes will start to write themselves. It's like, no, 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 I can't write this down right now. I'm driving a car. This would be very, very unsafe. Help me out. Just can, can you hit pause? And of course, they never, they never do. The characters do what they want to do. They do not listen. Anyone who tells you otherwise is lying. And then you're stuck trying to recreate the magic later on, which is never quite the same experience. Yeah, it, it, it is. It's, I've, I've often like just been like, no, I'm not going to think about you right now, trying to bottle up the words because mm -hmm. if you can't sit down and write it, it never quite, it never quite feels as, as, as awesome as it, you always feel like you have lost something really wonderful yes. if you to just sit it down right. But it's not really true because whatever you've written instead is pretty much probably along the same lines and probably just as good, maybe even better because you had more time to think about it. But still, you can't help but mourn the lost scenes. And, you know, I think it's the fact that you can't remember exactly what it was that makes it seem like it must have been lightning striking, you know, this amazing magical thing. And it might not actually have been that much better or that even that much different than what you ended up writing down, but it feels different. Yes, it really does. It's not, it's, it, it's so much easier to believe you've reached the platonic ideal when you don't have the proof <laughs> in front of you. Yeah. I had it. I swear I did. And no one will ever believe me because I don't have it anymore. <laughs> yes. Oh, it's so true. It's so true. So how did you come up with this amazing idea for this book then? Did, I mean, how did it come to you? Obviously, it must have come in pieces. Um, well, mostly, like I said, it was about, you know, that what if about, so what if this 
wonderful story isn't really so wonderful after all. But everybody believes because I was think I, I was really enjoying the idea of not enjoying, enjoying is kind of cruel. But I was interested in the idea of him going to all these places and people like, oh, it's Edward DeVere. And 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 he's the main person in this amazing story I love, and he got to live this wonderful dream and and he him and how he deals with that weight. Mm-hmm. And um, I didn't end up being that blatant about it. Um, actually, I kind of did. Because even though, because he knows that he doesn't know that this is not the world that he belongs in. He believes it because everybody constantly, constantly, it's in his ears. Mm-hmm. And he ends up drinking a little bit. I actually, originally it was five years um, since his downfall and he lost. Mm-hmm. But I made it three years because I felt bad for his liver. <laughs> I was like, I was sitting there thinking about it. I was like, you know, if I keep it at five years, no reader's going to believe that this guy should still have a liver as much as I have him drinking to try and block out the song here. <laughs> so, you know, and, and, I, and then I, and, but what the really cool part was that I realized that Avril, that wasn't a real story and that Avril knew the truth for three hours a night. And that was just, that was what appeared to me when I was, you know, driving through the snow going, yes, I don't have to be at work as long today. Sorry, work. I really do love you though. Um, <laughs> I really do love my job. And I'm not just saying that because I'm, I'm terrified I'll lose it because I'm evil, but I you do have a pretty cool job. It is. I get to work with some really wonderful people, but anyway, so I was in a good mood and I just had to start churning in my head. And that, that was the key that really allowed me to turn the story into a direction that I really wanted it to go instead, because I was afraid. One of the things I was afraid with the original idea was that the female, the young woman who was kind of in love with this guy Mm -hmm. was going to be kind of pathetic. And I didn't want to write her as, I mean, she wasn't going to be angsty, but I didn't like that he was still stuck in this story and she was trying to heal him. I didn't like that trope because I was afraid that realistically that's not, that's never going to work in real couples. Mm-hmm. I didn't want, I, I, I'm not very good at torturing my characters. <laughs> um, I, I, they have to suffer for a really good reason. <laughs> right. So I laugh only because I tortured one of my characters and yeah. Oh my God, you did. You I so did. <laughs> such a good scene i mean it was horrible it was hard to read it was it was you know the awful thing about that scene is how easy it was to write it that was the most disturbing thing in that book was how easy it was to write i should make sure that i'm never on your bad side (laughs) (laughs) yeah you know uh, and and i don't want to like end up talking about my book instead of yours but but i will say that writing that and it's it's more than just one scene but there's one scene that in particular um i did it because you can't you can't run around saying that you have this horrible bad guy and that you know people get taken into custody but they might not come back out you know you can't do that and then have your character be arrested and served tea and scones and <laughs> and how are you this morning dr martis it, it it doesn't work like that <laughs> 
No. <laughs> so, no. And, and, you know, when you talk about caring about your character's liver, when I suddenly realized, when I wrote the scene where he's arrested, I thought, oh, no. And I literally apologized and said, because I realized I couldn't be nice to him now. And I was like, I am so, so, so sorry about for what I'm going to have to do to you now. Because I really like that character. But he is, he's, he's one of my favorite characters. I love him. Oh, thank you. He was so I much fun to write. Well, thank you. <laughs> but what, what shocked me, because I did do some research into, because I was like, okay, I don't want to do this, but I better figure out how I'm going to do this. Um, what shocked me about writing it was how quickly it came. I think that was the scene that I wrote about 10 pages in an hour. And I felt like I had run a marathon when I was done. But what I realized and what was so horrifying was that writing these guys beating this poor man up, it was sort of like being high. And I realized when I was done, I was like, this is why people do it. The power makes you high. Wow. And it, it terrified me because I was like, I don't really want to understand that. And yet I apparently can't not understand that now. And I don't really want to know what that means. But, you know, I, I do understand when I see things on the news, especially recently, it, you know, I'm like, yeah, yeah. When you have that kind of power, exercising it does things to you. You know, it's it's not even so much, yes, you are exercising that power, but the power in a way is exercising you and you need to be aware of that and you need to really understand that it may control you more than you control it and what does that mean for you, which is a very unsettling thing to find yourself realizing because, I mean, if that happened to me because I wrote a scene in a book, I can only imagine what it's like when you're the one actually doing it. So many historical things made sense to me after I wrote that. It does. And I think that's one of the, um, there's a trope that horror fiction writers are the nicest people in the world because they get their bad parts out on Mm -hmm. the page. One of the magical things about writing is that you're able to research something, take it in, process it, understand it, and put it back out in a way that was very realistic and, somewhat brutal and um, brilliantly written. And now you, you understand so much more and, than you did. And that's one of the really wonderful things about being a writer is they always say, write what you know. And you can learn a lot of things. It's not write, a, be, write about being a secretary at a college or write about being a fencing teacher or whatever. It's about learning what it's really about and processing it. And then you could put it on the page. So what you did, mm-hmm. it was brilliant. Yeah. Unsettling, but revelatory. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. And for anybody who's listening, thinking, what is this? You don't talk to your characters. They don't do their own thing. Yeah, they do. I think characters are like little sub-personalities, you know? They're, they really do have minds of their own. and you don't discover that until you start playing with your own and then they do things you didn't expect. And then you think you're crazy 
<laughs> until you start to talk to other people and you find out that no, actually that's normal. It's just that most people don't know that. That's true. You invest a lot in creating um, a person that is not just another you, right? You don't, mm -hmm. because if you wrote a, a book filled with Cindy's, it would be really <laughs> boring in about 10 seconds. So you invest a lot creating these these people out of out of whatever clay you can find. And a lot of that time, it is clay from your own soul. So, and you just let them go. And you say, here, tell me a story. Mm -hmm. Your story. And let it let it go and that's and that's one another reason why i love writing so much is because they do surprise you because you just it's sort of like you wind them up and you say go have fun i've created this place for you tell me your thing tell me everything tell me your whole life yeah when they stop talking to you you know you're in trouble yeah um it, it it's usually it's because you've gone away without realizing you went in the wrong direction without realizing it. And then the only thing to do is I tend to, I know a lot of people go back and reread what they've done to see where they went wrong. I sometimes can do that, but a lot of times I just let it sit and let the back of my head work on it while I go for a walk or I watch something good on TV or something. And then it'll usually unknot itself and I know what to do and I'll just go forward. And then on the next draft, I scratch out the bad stuff. And, go on. I feel like it's worth delving into that a little bit more because I think people try to, they think they can think it all out, that there's, you know, it's like pieces of a puzzle or a math equation or something. And if you just keep trying different formulas or keep putting different pieces together, you're going to get it. But I think there's a whole lot to be said for letting the old subconscious chew on it and notify you when it's figured out the answer. And And in fact, I think and I know this from coaching as well as writing, a lot of the time that kind of stuff will be better than what you would have come up with anyway, especially if you try to force it. Forcing it does not work. No, not at all. And that's why I'm always telling people, it's, I call it feeding the muse. Mm -hmm. um, I'm just like, you know, you have to constantly feed the muse. Everything you do, everything you experience goes into the back of the head. And I, I call it a compost heap, which is not the most romantic or charming <laughs> driving it but everything just goes back like the walks you take or the things you read even and it's not like and you're not sitting there stealing going oh this neil gaiman book i'm oh, oh i'm gonna copy off him i'm so gonna copy everything he's just <laughs> it's not that way at all everything it just goes into the back of the head and it unwind it unravels and maybe mm -hmm. sometime you'll see something and you'll go that concept i think that's something neil gaiman talked about in american gods or something, you know, because, you know, there's folklore is the same across, right? Right. But it's, it it's, isn't thievery so much as you've taken it, you've taken it apart, you've let it settle down in there and mix in with everything else you've done and seen, and it comes back out as your own. Yes. It's important. The part about it comes back out as your own is the important part, because I would never advocate anybody snitching. To right. <laughs> right. And I think we can get too paranoid about that too. You know, I mean, I mean, there's, I want to be very careful about how I say this because there has been a raft of theft or near theft or accusations of theft ever since digital book publishing became a thing That's where, you know, somebody somehow, you know, 
whatever method they use to swipe the text and put it in a file and upload it as their own on Amazon and sell it. And then battles over whose stuff is really theirs and whose isn't and and how similar is it and is it just that it's the same the same subgenre and therefore the odds are really similar are really high that you're going to come up with two very similar plots or is it straight on theft or is somebody just being paranoid but you know i've had people say to me so many times and i'm sure you have too you know, because there is this idea that if you're a writer and somebody else mentions an idea that you really like, you're not going to steal it because it's theirs, right? But at the same time, you know, it's kind of like the thousand monkeys with a thousand typewriters. You know, if you gave a thousand monkeys with a thousand typewriters the same prompt, and we assume here that they speak English and can type in English, they're not going to come up with identical stories, You know, I mean, a couple of them are going to be more similar than others, but they're all going to be, you know, totally different and in their own ways, even if it was the same basic story, the way that it's told, the the nuances of the characters, that stuff is going to be different, but odds are really good that it's going to be more different than that. And so, you know, you can, you can take the first line of a Charles Dickens novel and use it to start your own book and end up with a completely different book from that one line. You can take the same basic situation, which is oftentimes what a prompt is, and and you and I could sit down for an hour and write something and compare at the end of the hour and they would be totally different things. That's so, true. Yeah, so there's there's the idea and the respect that it's somebody else's idea and they should write it. And I wholeheartedly agree with that. But I have also been in a situation with one of my grad school advisors where I happened to mention the right three words to her after watching a Doctor Who episode. And she said, you know, I said, I'm wondering what that story would be. She said, I know exactly what that story is, but I can't use it because it's yours. And I said, the odds that we're going to do the same thing with it are so slim that I think you should go ahead and do it. The only downside to that is that she sent me a copy of the book and now I can't read it because I haven't figured out if I want to do anything with it on my end. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's that's something that I find I worry about way too much is um, my next work in progress is more modern. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I think to myself, oh, this is, a, this is a really good, this is fairly unique. And then I was fooling around on Goodreads looking for my next book. And I'm like, oh, because my, my main character is actually um, a national park and the national is actually at a motel outside a national park. And just sort of has end up, ended up with all the bunch of outcasts and she sort of watches over them. There's a Kelpie who was accused of drowning a boy. And so the Kelpie actually is now there is the person who takes care of the lawn mowing and stuff like that. But you know, she can't leave, things mm-hmm. like that. And then I'm flipping through and there's a woman who has a supernatural bed and breakfast. I was like, slam, no, not going for that. <laughs> I think that, that I had, that that's where it came from. I, I do, especially when you're kind of interested in, there's so many stories and they're really good stories about like um, the Mercy Thompson series where she's a shapeshifter and she's a coyote and she's with a werewolf pack and so many good stories. And I love them. But I want to dabble in the werewolf area. And how do I make sure that I'm not like 
you know, I want to make sure that everything I'm doing is original, but there's only so many ways you could talk about werewolves. Right. So I do tend to, like, I try not to let myself read anything touching upon what I'm writing at the time I'm reading it. I'm writing it. So it's like, if I, if when I go back to the story after I work on something else I, I'm kind of interested in, um, I'm going to be reading nothing but like historical, like the lives of people from the past and stuff like that, like historical nonfiction, maybe some Bernard Cornwell books or something, because I don't want, I don't want to feel like I'm cribbing off of somebody else's mm-hmm. note on what I write to be my story. Because I think that I'm okay. It's one of the few things I'm vain about. I think I'm a fairly good writer. I apologize to everyone who's listening. I'm not normally so vain, I promise. But <laughs> She's you a have pretty to good also, writer. Oh, thank <laughs> you. Thank you. Well, you also have to believe in yourself or this be, goes from being um, marginally okay to um, wanting to drink heavily because you, you just can't stand <laughs> anything you know because you think you're crap and every time you get a good review you're happy and every time you get a bad review you're like i'm done i'm never writing another word ever again and you don't want to do that to yourself so you have to believe in yourself it's the only way you stay sane yeah yeah oh you just said so much in there (laughs) (laughs) so much good stuff in there because you know i'm thinking back to the whole debate about and and people will occasionally ask this on Quora or just ask it in general or or just mention it as if it's fact, you know, like, oh, but if you te- if you take a creative writing class, it's gonna make you not original anymore. It's like that's like saying if I take a calculus class, it's gonna make me not be able to do calculus as well as I could. I, I mean, that doesn't make any sense you need the tools you have to have the tools you have to have the tools but you also have to read books you know you can't there is nothing to gel in the back of your head if you're trying to work in a vacuum yes it it can't read widely yeah and and you know i mean my whole grad school program was based on the idea of you know, read things that have accomplished the things you want to do so that you see how you might do them. And you're not going to go and copy that exact thing, but it will inspire something else. It gives you more to pull from. Yes. And it also means that you've had to learn from something you've read, which hopefully is a skill that once developed, you'll never stop doing, whether it's conscious or not. But, but yeah, that people get paranoid about that too. Yeah. And it's, it's a shame because if you read widely, um, like you might never want to write a r- romance novel, but you want to read, wi- especially if like, you're, like let's say you're a, gen- you're, you're a gentle person, a man, and you want to write something that has a romantic element in it. You should be reading romance novels written by women so that you aren't just writing romance from a man's perspective because as we, as we all know, men and women see what's romantic mm-hmm. differently. So you need to teach yourself these things, and that's an easy, palatable way to do it. And also, it teaches you their expectations. You want to learn, so you want to read widely so you can understand people's expectations when they pick up a mystery or they pick up a, a, a comedy novel or whatever. But also, sometimes you might never read science fiction, but there might be some clever ways that this writer puts phrases that you want mm-hmm. to learn how to do. And the best way to do it is to sit down and just read how they do it. Yeah. Yeah. And some of the, um, you've got me thinking about PG Woodhouse now, who 
I would say is inimitable, except that Douglas Adams did a mighty good job. Yes, he did. <laughs> you know, not not exactly the same, and yet you can see it. You can, you know, I I discovered Adams first, and then I found Woodhouse. And as soon as I started reading it, I thought, oh, somebody definitely read this. And as much as I love it. I'm intimidated by the idea of trying to imitate that, you know, because it is such a particular style, but it can still influence how you string words together. There can be little, little bits of it that creep in there. And it's back to what we were saying before, you know, then it's your thing. It's your take on how to write this kind of thing or how to, how to use language, maybe applied in a completely different way. I mean, I don't know if there's anybody who took, Woodhouse's style and tried to apply it to a historical romance novel. I don't, boy, wouldn't that be amazing? Um, oh my God, that'd be, that would be amazing. Oh, that'd be, or it could be absolutely horrible. One or the other, probably not much in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know, it, it's still, Douglas Adams is still demonstrably Douglas Adams. It's not Jeeves and Worcester in space, you know? <laughs> And and so it's I think that's a great example of how something can influence you without you becoming a copycat. That's brilliant. I love that. <laughs> so I want to back up a little bit because I feel like we skipped over everything between high school and college and <laughs> I've published a book. <laughs> so can you can you talk a little bit about that process moving from one to the next? I mean, I know you once said to me something like, you know, I have done literally every kind of work you can do around publishing a book. I have edited, I have written, I have copy edited, I have proofread, you know, so, so there's a lot of stuff that, that goes in there. I don't know how, how easy it is to encapsulate all of that. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's two, there's two, there's two, um, ways to see the story. I am, um, because of the twists and turns of life, I have not always been as focused on writing as I should have been. But I did, um, I've been a book reviewer. And by being a book reviewer, that reminded me a lot of the stuff that I learned in college about how to um, read something cre uh, cr critically, mm -hmm. but uh, while still being a reader. Because when you're in college, you're a student. You know, you're reading something critically so that you can say something that we hope will get you a decent grade. Right. <laughs> when you're, That's really it, yes. <laughs> when you're reading as a book reviewer, you're trying to figure out, you're reading it critically to figure out what you want to say to the person who's going to read your book review so that they have a good grasp of the story yet don't feel betrayed by you. Mm -hmm. If they read it, they're like, this is the most... You know, you said this was a really fantastic novel and I, this is garbage. What the heck did you do to me? You know, so it's, um, it made me see books a different way and mm -hmm. the same thing again, but again, it's a different hat. You're, you're not, you're not sitting there as a, as a reader so much because the book reviewer is the reader's best friend. The editor is the writer's best friend. And so you're sitting there trying to figure out how to make sure that there's no spinach stuck in their teeth. Or there's <laughs> showing and all the other stuff because you're trying and so you read it in a different way and that taught me how to read my stuff to edit it on what I'm on you know like about the third draft I'm really doing the critical editing so I edited for some magazines I edited for a company and um, I worked for AOL for a while 
and interviewed people, interviewed authors, and that was fun. Um, I, I, I've, and I interviewed for Gotta Write and a whole bunch of places. I did a lot of author interviews and it was fun talking to people and finding out like what you're doing now, you find mm-hmm. out how they tick creatively. And that, that's a lot of fun. And it also kind of sometimes gives you ideas about, you know, that explain how you work too. Um, but a lot of times, like I, uh, I, I sometimes say that I'm three different people. I'm the fencer <laughs> girl who is like, no, we're going to go out and fence because you're years old and you only have a few more years where you'll be effective on the field. Then there's the writer who's like, screw you. You take all the time. I want to sit here and write and tell these stories. And then there's the normal woman who's just trying to keep a job, be a decent daughter, <laughs> all that stuff. And he's trying to keep peace between these two assholes who are, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to curse. It's okay. <laughs> good. I, I swear I was trying to be good. It's fine. Uh, Don't worry about it. <laughs> um, jerk faces who are <laughs> willing to do whatever they want to do. They're both unreasonable. So, you know, it's balancing a life. And trying to be a writer at the same time is really freaking hard. That's what I was trying to say. I should have just said that. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but you're not wrong. You know, it's like you have all of these conflicting things that, that you're trying to be all of these people, do all these things at the same time, and you still only have the same 24 hours in a day. And with any luck, a third of those are earmarked for the sleep part. Yeah, my, my writing career between college and now has just been trying to get things written trying to get established. I did a lot of stuff because I was hoping to get established as, oh, I recognize her name from book reviews or reviews, interviews or whatever. Maybe I'll read her book. And then there was such a lapse between that part and published that I totally wasted any headway I was gotten because, you know, my father was gravely ill and I was just dealing with so much that really, and, you know, I really love fencing. So all those things have slowed down this part of my life. So basically I just, you, but and, and I get so angry with myself, but the thing I wanted to say, the thing I wanted to express is it's important that you understand that you shouldn't be angry with yourself over this stuff. I know there's a lot of people who are listening who probably have a work in progress in fragments on their computer or in the, the classic, in the desk drawer. Yeah. <laughs> and you get mad at yourself because you're like, how do I do everything and get to create? Maybe I'll mm-hmm. do it tomorrow. I'll do it next I'll do it when I retire. And just don't get angry at yourself and remember that you are worth the half an hour or the hour that you can squeeze in to write when you can do it, make progress when you can, and forgive yourself. Be kind to yourself because if you just keep at it, eventually you will get a book and then you can, you can start over and you can edit it. Don't worry about, you know, some people just start over and over and over again. Don't worry about that. Just write it even if it's like the most you start out as being a story about cats who live in a forest and it ends up being about you know a woman who likes to bake marshmallow pies that are poisonous it's okay (laughs) don't start over (laughs) just write it out and then go okay now i know what i need to do to make the cats become a woman who who poisons people with marshmallow pies okay and then you, you know what, where you need to go to write your next draft. So that's yeah, all. You, you never know what you have until you've written it. Yes. Especially when it's like a mystery or something. Then 
you need to be able to go back and go, okay, um, I'm putting this gun in the drawer here now. Yeah. So, <laughs> chapter 12, the gun will be there in chapter 12. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mysteries are so much harder, I think. But then I haven't ever really played with writing one because of that, because it just feels like you too many pieces to to figure out. But before we get too far away from it, I want to say, so. so this book that's coming out is book number what? Oh, gosh. Um, I've written four novels. I have a short story collection. And this is this, the fifth book and the sixth. You know, if you count the short story collection as its own thing that sits on a shelf, it's the sixth. And you've edited some anthologies and things too, yes. right? I, I, I did. When I was with Drollery Press, I edited a couple of anthologies. Um, and I haven't, I haven't gotten back into that work. I should. I wonder if I could. Because that's fun. Working with other people and like figuring out how the stories all fit together as a whole is actually kind of fun. But well, I just want to point out that Miss I'm pulled in too many different directions and I haven't spent as much time writing as I should has a shelf full of things that she has written or collected or edited in spite of that. So, (laughs) you know. Now, now I feel uncomfortably humble. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just think it's important to acknowledge because we don't give ourselves credit for the things that we've done. We focus on, I haven't done enough of this and I haven't done enough of that. And meanwhile, there's, you know, six, seven books on a shelf with your name on them that are not factoring into this conversation. And I'm sure that there are people listening to this who have done the same thing with whatever it is that they do, even if it's just not giving themselves credit for running the dishwasher and doing the laundry because there are three things that they hope to get to that they didn't get to. Well, you still got to those two. We're way too hard on ourselves about stuff like this. We are. And you think, you you would think magically, let's say if you were, I bet even Neil Gaiman does it to himself or probably Bernard Cornwell or anybody you can think of who you've seen on a bookshelf in Barnes and Noble. They probably do the same thing because the goalposts always move. Mm Mm-hmm. And you're always thinking what you have to do to get to the next level, so to speak. And um, I don't know that we ever sit back and go, well, I'm not doing badly right now. And that's one of the things, it's a really good point you made. If you get up, especially in times like these, when everything is kind of cruddy around us, mm-hmm. if you get up and you feed yourself and you start to dishwasher and you do one thing that makes you happy, and one thing that makes you feel like maybe you've moved forward, even if it's only like five minutes of putting something away, it's still a victory. Yeah, it's not nothing. It's way more than nothing. But we treat that stuff like it's nothing. And I think that's one of the things that we do that's wrong because I think it, we keep putting so much pressure on ourselves that it crushes, it crushes all pleasure in some time, some, in mm-hmm. some, but also... Because it just keeps you, it keeps you down and you don't need to do that to yourself. The world will do it for you. As my mother used to tell me, she, she would, if, if I went into the other room and asked her, she'd tell me the same thing. <laughs> I wanted to put that in because I made it sound like she wasn't here anymore. And I was like, she's here. She's here. <laughs> but you know, it's, it's funny because I, I was at a content conference the other week, which is like the people who write things that go on websites and things like that. And 
one of the speakers talked about how a lot of websites don't work very well in part because we throw so much stuff on them because we just feel like we have to produce, produce, produce. And I think that that applies in lots of other contexts. You know, it's like we were talking about earlier, the, the subconscious can't bubble stuff up to you if you are so busy focusing on all of the conscious stuff and trying so hard to do it all yourself, it can't get through. It also doesn't have as, you know, I mean, it, it can work regardless, but not as well as if you give yourself time to sit down and read a book or stare out the window for 10 minutes, which I feel like, you know, the gods of American capitalism are going to come and strike me down for saying that. <laughs> but there, there's nothing wrong with staring out the window for 10 minutes. Sometimes you really need to just do nothing. And we've gotten to the point where so often I wonder what the heck we think we're making all of this stuff for. We talk about productivity, well, but, but why? Why is being productive this mark of status and worth if, you know, do we even know what we're producing and why we're producing it? It is. It's absolutely a good point because I think sitting and letting yourself just be is such a lost art. Yes. And it's, it's something that, I mean, I was trying to sit outside I have a pavilion, I, a, a little gazebo that I put up every year. It's got lights. It's got a little fountain that trickles. Ooh, nice. Sitting there. And I've got flowers all around. And I was like trying to make myself sit there for more than one minute. And it was impossible because I kept on, I couldn't, I couldn't shut off. And yeah. why, why are, why do, like you said, why is this not, I think we value productivity over people's lives. We act like, did you do something right this second? If you're mm -hmm. not every second, you're wasting your life. You're wasting everything. You're wasting my money. Or, right. And it's like, why do you care? If, if the job's getting done, why can't I just sit and be at peace? If I'm doing what you pay me for and everybody's happy, just let me alone. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can't imagine that very many people get to their deathbed and say, boy, I wish I had churned out more stuff just to churn <laughs> out more stuff. <laughs> I just, you know, I have not been on my deathbed and I'm hoping not to find out for a very long time yet. But just on a gut level, that feels totally off to me that anyone would think that. It's like, you know, you hear that all the time. Nobody ever got to the end of their life and said, boy, I wish I spent more time at the office. It, yeah. You know, I mean, we, we, we are very good at prioritizing the wrong things, us humans, I think. Absolutely. And... I think that that's one of the reasons why we're having protests now, because we have, we're having so, you know, unemployment's high, everything, there's so many problems right now, because we don't value people as much as we value what they do for us. And yeah. it's, it's wrong. I mean, we need to value the, the human being and we need to make sure that they're taken care of. Mm -hmm. Every person has a certain level of things they deserve. And I don't want to get too, I'm getting political, so I'm going to stop because I don't want to make this a rant. But we need to take care of people and we need to realize that people are more important than the bank account. Mm -hmm. And if we do that, then they'll read our books and they'll be happier and that's be fine. <laughs> Look, it's light. But you know, as you say that, I'm thinking, you know, we would never hold children to the standards that we hold ourselves. And we say that it's because, oh, they're just children. And yet children in general tend to be a lot happier, especially the young children, 
because they get to play, they get to be creative, they get to just be. Yeah, they're not any better at being bored than the rest of us, you know, but, but they also don't get so hung up on it because they haven't been trained yet that their job is to make widgets, you know, and that that's, that is your, your life is you are the widget maker. And the irony of that is that I feel like we have turned ourselves into the widgets, you know, we're trying to be this cookie cutter thing that has to, you know, adhere to all of these rules. And most of these rules are just rules that we made up. In fact, I'm wondering, did you ever, when you started writing when you were 13 or in high school, or, or frankly, I think this happens at any age, did you ever have issues with anybody saying, oh, yes, of course, you have to go work on your little story now? Did you ever hear that? Or were you lucky enough not to? Um, When I was younger, I was, I I had, um, my parents were always fine with me writing. I, I live out in the middle of nowhere. So if my parents knew that I was safely doing something that meant <laughs> running outside in the road or doing anything, they were quite happy. And my parents were always fairly supportive of my writing. And my mother's really supportive. And I've had men, though, you know, the people I was, you know, interested in conversating and dating who were sort of a little bit like patronizing sometimes. And it's like, but, you know, I actually had someone say, well, you're not going to want to write when you're married. You're going to <gasps> And I was like, <laughs> throwing out the whole man. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was probably a wise call. <laughs> I mean, it's funny because I think, again, I want to be careful how I say this because I'm not a painter and I'm not, well, I am a musician, but I'm not that, you know, out playing gigs kind of musician um, and photographer and whatever. I mean, I think it's so easy to try to downgrade art into something that's not for grownups. And I've heard it most in a writing context. I'm sure that it happens in other places, you know, oh, right. I'm not as important as your painting. And, and that, yeah, I, I like your criterion. Just, just throw that whole idea away with, with that person, if possible, because that's, I mean, if they're going to do that to you about your creative pursuits, they're going to do it in other places. Yes. You shouldn't have to hide who you are to make someone else happy. Right. You know, I've, I've been, you know, I had a relationship where, you know, it was tempting to hide books under the couch because this person thought that I had way too many books. And I was like, wait a second, wait a second. Is this the kind of life you want? I, I'm not going to be a book hiding yeah. wench. I'm going to be a, buy me more bookshelves. <laughs> wench. <laughs> Build me more bookshelves. <laughs> oh, that was how I spent all of February was building bookshelves because I'd finally reached critical mass. <laughs> yes. I, I, and I got fairly good at it. You know, I have a new room with it's bookshelf palooza. And when the, when the wall bows and you think, I can't put my books straight, my bookshelf straight and have eight foot of books, cut them in half and they'll just naturally fold it. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> there you go. Carpentry tips from the writer who knows nothing. 
Oh, that's fantastic. You're reminding me that about eight years ago, I got rid of four or 500 books. I call it the great book purge of 2012. And the funny thing is that I still have trouble remembering which ones I have and which ones I don't anymore. Well, you need a list. I have a list. Like I literally, when I go to the bookstore, I pull my cell phone out and get up my Google spreadsheet (laughs) because I can't remember what I owed. I have bought too many second copies of books. I sometimes I still do because I get lazy and build up because I remember nothing. I have the memory of a well-meaning goldfish. <laughs> need a list. And this is the librarian can... in you coming out. <laughs> <laughs> you are your own librarian, my dear. True. This is true. <laughs> if I were, then probably I wouldn't have spent as much time in the last week as I have looking for a couple of books that I know have to be here somewhere. But I don't know where they got to, unless I lent them to someone and don't remember who it was. Oh, you put them somewhere safe. Somewhere safe is the most dangerous place on this planet. (laughs) Now, so now I've got a vision of these books, you know, with little with little pew pew guns going like across the desert, (laughs) trying to save themselves so they could get back home. (laughs) These are not the books you're looking for. As we go full geeky book nerd, which we could probably do for the rest of the day. Oh, God. Don't get me started. Nobody will have any respect for me. Ah, that's not true. That's not true at all. So I'm trying to think if there's anything else to ask you because we're about, you know, at time and I know that you have things you need to do, but there's a little bit of time left. I don't know. Is there anything that you've learned from writing that you wish other people knew or that you wish you'd learned sooner? I think that it is mostly, and it's, it, I think I touched on it before where the most important thing is that drafts are your best friend. So you write the first draft and you just let the words out, let them fall where they go. Then you write a second draft where you start to make, now you know what you need to know. So you can go back through. And then this, and, and you don't start from the very beginning. You don't like trash anything. You just open Word again and go up to the top and work your way down. Someone actually looked at me in horror once and said, you rewrite everything? And I'm like, oh, honey, no, no, no. It's why we're so awesome because it's still there. You just get to tweak it. And then, you know, the third draft is your sit down and make sure that all the bruises are okay and healed up and no scratches, doesn't look like it's been tussling too much with the people and the other kids in the, in the playground. <laughs> Band-aids are great and all that stuff. And then, you know, a fourth draft if necessary, because after that, people read it. You get mm-hmm. a reader who isn't just going to be like, I love you so much. Of course I love your book. You want someone who reads a lot. My mother's actually really good because she reads so much mm-hmm. and so widely that she's actually able to tell me a lot of the problems. And, you know, you get your editor to do it. And then you got your fourth draft sometimes. This, this, this book actually had a few, few extra drafts because it's because of the, by virtue of it being, Avril doesn't remember, Avril remembers. There's mm-hmm. stories overlapping. And if you don't actually live in my head, which thank God you don't, because I'm sure it's a very strange <laughs> place. Um. It doesn't, you have to be very, very careful. Everything makes sense to the people who don't live inside your head. So 
that's I drafts are good and don't be afraid of them and be nice to yourself there I think those are all my lessons and all my sage advice all good stuff yeah being nice to yourself is the I think the foundation of all of the rest of it and sometimes the hardest thing to do so I'm really glad you brought that up thank you well this has been a blast I can't believe we finally did it and now it's over Oh, I know. This is so, I'm so depressed because I've had so much <laughs> and it went so fast. Are you sure? No, no, that's, it's, yeah, it's time. Oops. Yeah. <laughs> well, yep. Thank you very much. Oh, for thank you. Me. I'm glad we finally managed to do it. And thank you all of you who are listening. I hope that, I hope that you enjoyed yourselves and I hope that I didn't lather on too much. That's this week's episode. Thanks so much to Cindy Lynn Spear for joining me. Do check out the show notes at fycuriosity.com. And if you know someone who would appreciate this episode, please pass it on. Thanks. You can find show notes, the six creative beliefs that are screwing you up, and more at fycuriosity.com. I'd also love for you to join the conversation on Instagram. You'll find me at fycuriosity. Follow Your Curiosity is produced by me, Nancy Norbeck, with music by Joseph McDade. If you like Follow Your Curiosity, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to tell your friends. It really helps me reach new listeners. See you next time.